Amen. Well, we're glad to have you here today. Today we're wrapping up a series that we've been doing on the first part of Exodus, and we're going to come back to it later uh, next year. And uh, that series is called Exodus, God's Deliverance. Uh, next week we're going to be starting a brand new series we're excited about, and it is called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. And it's going to be looking at some parables from Matthew 13, where Jesus gives us some parables to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. What his kingdom is like. So Pastor Phil will kick that off next week. We're looking forward to that. But today we are going to wrap up Exodus. We're going to be uh, looking at the end of their uh, journey getting out of Egypt. And then we'll pick it up next, uh, next summer, actually. Uh, their journey from there to the promised land. But today I want to ask you, how many of you guys have ever been in a musical? Raise your hand. All right, a lot of you. How many of you have ever had a kid or a friend be in a musical? All right. Kids are the ones who are the best, aren't they? Especially like Christmas. So I've got a grandson named Beckham, and he was in this little kids uh, program last uh, Christmas. And so we went. This was Beckham's look. And we're like, well, hopefully he'll warm up. But here he was in another picture. That is a different picture. You can tell. See the kid on the left? Look at his tongue. You can see it's different. (laughs) Beckham is still in the same position. And then I got one more. Look at him. So I was his position in the musical the whole time. So kids are great in musicals, aren't they? And uh, I haven't been up here for a while, so it's, uh, just because I'm up here, I can tell you I've got two new grandkids. Uh, twins were born. Uh, Brenda and I went down to Florida and got to visit uh, Jordan and Julian. And that's really cool. That was a couple weeks ago. And then I don't know if you guys heard, but I got married. And so now here's all of our grandkids all together. So Brenda has a greater contribution of grandkids than I do. But it's so cool getting to know all of them. But that's our, that's our clan. And anytime any of the, the younger ones are in a musical, they'll probably just be like this. That's how they do that, right? Um, how many of you have ever watched a musical? How many of you just hate musicals? That's kind of where I'm at. That's kind of where I'm at. But hopefully you're okay with this one. Some have suggested that the grand story of the Bible is a musical. Because there are songs and singing of God's people and even angels from beginning to end. And we're going to look at the first song recorded in the Bible today in our text. So if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 15 or turn on your device and go there. But if not, it will be here on the screen. This is one of the oldest songs in history. Uh, Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Exodus is the exit of Israel out of Egypt where they were slaves. And God brought them out miraculously. And if you haven't been here for our series, I'd encourage you to go find it online at our website and listen to it. The story of how God chose Israel and then brought them out of Egypt in a very miraculous way. Verse 1 says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Now, Phil's really good about saying, if there's a therefore, you've got to ask, what is therefore? I don't have any cool saying for this. But if it says then, you should look at what happened previous to that. So... Look at chapter 14, the very end after they've gone through the Red Sea. It says, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Next verse. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. And then Moses, his servant. That's a summary of what's just happened. They've been brought out of Israel, out of Egypt. And they've escaped through the Red Sea where God then brought the water crashing in 
on the Egyptians, and he saved them. And so now back to verse 1 of chapter 15. There they are on the shore, and Moses apparently pens this song. Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. So here it says the Israelites, it could have been all of them, but it's possible it was just the men who sang. Because if you go down to verse 20, it says there that Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, and Aaron was Moses' brother who helped him, took a timbrel in her hand and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing and Miriam sang to them. And then it's the first few words of that same song. So we don't know for sure, but maybe it was something they call an antiphonal song back and forth. Maybe the men sang a verse or maybe they sang the whole song and then the women sang it back. But however it's happening, we don't have the melody, but we've got the words. They've gone through this miraculous rescue. And so they sing. But what was the song about? Well, there's a couple different ways you could break down this song. And if you read the commentaries, they're broken down in various ways. But in a simple way, verses 1 through 10 look backward. And verses 12 through 21 look forward. And so this morning, I'd like to just have three conversations as we look at this song. I want to talk, first of all, about what God has done. And then we're going to look at what God, who God is. And then we're going to look at what God will do. And we'll follow the song and see how those three themes trace out. And as we go through it, I want to say this. Singing isn't for everyone. And some of you just went, good. Now my wife will quit bugging me and elbowing me to sing when we're, we're doing this, right? No, what I mean by that is this kind of singing, this particular song, isn't for everybody. It's for Christians. It's for people who have been redeemed and delivered. Now, it is a song that everyone can sing. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I hope that you'll see how much God loves you and the lengths that he's gone. So that you could become part of his family. But singing isn't for everyone, at least this kind. Conversation number one, what God did. You know, it's unique to God's people to gather and do what we just did. I've got a friend named Ross, lived in my uh, previous neighborhood, and I brought him to church. And when we're done, he's like, what's with the singing thing? You know, where else do you go where a group of people looks at a screen and just sings? It really is something that's unique to the church, the people of God. You might go to a concert where there's an individual who's leading and the songs are up there and you sing along with it. But the idea of just coming together to sing particular songs to the Lord and to each other is something that's unique to the people of God. And it's throughout the scripture and it continues today. And actually we've been recording and we have video evidence we're going to look at of those of you who weren't singing just a moment ago. Just kidding, just kidding. But, you know, when I was growing up, too, as a guy who didn't really have a good voice, I was hesitant to sing at church. In fact, I thought maybe it kind of had to be cool, you know, to sing. And so, or maybe it was cool not to sing. But I just remember as a teenage guy struggling to sing. I didn't have a good voice. It didn't seem fun to me. And that might be some of you. Maybe singing isn't your particular thing. But I just want to encourage you. I hope you'll see that if we're Christians, we have a song to sing. And it's something that should just be part of who we are. And it certainly is something that we do when we gather together. When we're saved, we sing. And worship is not just singing. A lot of times we equate worship with worship songs or worship singing, right? We're in a worship service right now. And from the very beginning of the service, from comments to singing, which is part of it, but to our sharing, to testimonies, when we have missionaries come back and report, the prayers... Certainly the preaching, all of that is worship. 
It's not just the singing. And in fact, did you know that most of our worship doesn't happen in this building? Because worship is a lifestyle. Worship is living in a way to honor God. And so most of your worship happens when you walk out that door. It happens at your home. It happens in your car. It happens at your workplace and at school and in your neighborhood. It happens when you're by yourself. That's worship. But singing certainly is an important part of worship. That's why we call this a worship service. God's people do gather to sing. And part of what they sing about is what God has done. So let's look at verse 1. Now it shifts and says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. We just sang that. And here's the story, right? But both the, both the horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. So this song talks about what God has done. He's hurled the rider into the sea and then these exclamations of praise to God for that. Now, I've highlighted some of the pronouns. Sometimes we are disappointed when songs say I and my. But here we see there's nothing wrong with that because God is a personal God. Now, there are songs we need to evaluate where it's selfish, that all the tension is going to the person. But part of what our songs do is not only help us remember and rehearse God's truth, but it helps us express our heart to God. And here you see the personal part of it. I came across this quote in the Cornerstone uh, commentary. It says, If God cannot be known personally, he does not take a personal interest in each of our lives. Then the world is a dark place. But in fact, he does take such interest. And that means that in the end, there is nothing in the world that can finally conquer us. So God is a personal God and he takes a personal interest in our lives. It can't just be, do you know God? It has to be, is he your God? It's not just a God. He's my God. And he mentions there that. When God becomes your personal God, then he looks out for you. He makes sure that no one can conquer you. And verse 3 has an interesting phrase. It says, the Lord is a warrior. It literally means a man of war. Does that surprise you that that's how God is described? He's a warrior. He's a man of war. Now, that could be misunderstood in a lot of different ways. But really, it just means, especially in this context, God fights and defends his people. It was God who took Israel out of Egypt. It was God who fought for them. It was God who defended them. They could not fight for themselves. And so that same quote continues. This is what is meant when Moses calls God a warrior. There is nothing in Scripture when it is taken as a whole in both its testaments to suggest that God is warlike by nature, that he is fierce and aggressive, finding his identity in military destruction. Continuing on, there, in fact, the promises of his final kingdom are marked by promises of the end of warfare. No, God is a warrior only in defense of his people because of the evil in this world. So God is a warrior who defends his people. God can be our warrior who defends us against Satan and his demons. Verse 4 says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea. The deep waters have coveted, covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. I couldn't get away from that. And so I brought some stones here just thinking about. Here was this great army Pharaoh had. And they had chariots. And Pastor Phil described for us that that would have been the top of the line, most advanced weaponry. 
It says his choice officers were there. And what did God do with them? It's like he took the chariots and they sank to the bottom. The army sank to the bottom. Special forces sank to the bottom. All that Pharaoh sent simply sank to the bottom of the Red Sea like a rock. That's because God is a warrior who defends his people. In verse 6, he says, Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. Some of your translations say wrath. So throughout this song, as we celebrate God's victory, we keep running into these terms that might surprise us about a God. We hear mostly about a God of love. Here it says, he unleashed his burning anger towards them, his wrath. If we genuinely know and understand who God is, we know that he has a wrath and anger towards sin and evil and against those who would destroy what he has created. The Riken and Hughes in their commentary quote another man, and here's what he says. This wrath of God is not a vehement, irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, capricious venting of some supernatural spleen, right? The reason we struggle with this is because we know what happens when we get angry. Or some of the dictators or tyrants in our world, when people get angry and they do things that are unthinkable. And so it's hard to think about God being righteous in his anger and in his wrath towards sin and those who would oppose him. And certainly that fits what the Egyptians were trying to do. But he's not just like a lot of people that we know where he flies off the handle or he just gets angry and so he destroys people or things. If the man, it is the manifestation of the repugnance of a holy God against those who defile, disrupt, and destroy the world he has made. And of course, this is exactly what the Egyptians had done. Defiled, disrupted, and destroyed what God had made. God is love, but God also has wrath towards sin and those who oppose him. But we shouldn't forget that God is patient. How patient was he with the Egyptians? Ten plagues he gave them. Years and years he gave them to let his people go and to give in to what he was asking. Romans chapter 2 addresses this issue and it says this, Or do you show contempt to the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not really realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God isn't this angry creator up there saying, you will obey me and pushing us towards that. God leads us to repentance with kindness. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his, patient, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So God is patient and he's loving and he wants every one of us to repent of our sins and turn to him and become part of his family. So that we can spend eternity with him and avoid the ultimate pouring out of his wrath in a place called hell. He wants us to avoid that. But we are storing up wrath whenever we continue to push God away. Whenever we continue in our sin. He is patient, but his patience runs out. And sometimes that will be in this life. Sometimes God says, that's enough. But for everyone, there is coming a day when this life will be over. And then there's a judgment. And those who know Christ... Enter into heaven because our sin has already been paid for. The wrath has already been paid for. But if you haven't done that, then you are responsible for your own sin. And you are just building up wrath 
that God one day will pour out. The Egyptians and Pharaoh continued to be stubborn and unrepentant. And so he poured out his wrath. And so they sing about that. And some of our songs will sing about that, that God is a righteous God who does pour out his wrath. And there is a day coming when he will do that. Verse 6 says, God will repay each person according to what they've done. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Our God is a God of wrath and anger towards sin. If you're here today and you don't know God, remember he's offering you kindness that should lead you to repentance through Jesus Christ. But there is an end to his patience. And there will be a day of wrath just like there was for the Egyptians. So they continue in this song in verse 7. Verse 8, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging water stood up like a wall. All right, the blast of your nostrils. I was like, I was uh, intrigued by this. What's the blast of your nostrils? I wasn't going to have everybody hold up your hand and you blow out your nose, but I was afraid some stuff might come out. So I don't be crude or anything like that, but real, real gently, you know, how hard can you blow through your nose like that? Not very good, right? Unless you really are blowing your nose. But just to get air out, it's, it's not what you're... Your nose does. They say just a blast from his nostrils. What did it accomplish? The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Now listen, the enemy said this. I will pursue and I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I'll gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. You think God is nervous? Look at the next verse. Contrast their statements with his. But God, you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead. See the contrast between God and the best, strongest, smartest of human beings? Nothing. Our God is this huge, awesome God that with the breath from his nostrils and his mouth can spread a sea. So that two million people can walk across on dry land. And then when the Egyptians are in the middle of it, he can let it collapse on them and destroy them. There is no battle between these people and God. Continuing on. Second conversation is going to be who God Yes. Before we look at that, let me just say, as I was going through this, I was reminded of Romans chapter 8 that said, if God is for us, who can be against us? We may not have walked through the Red Sea, but we certainly see things that can only be explained by God. We've, we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been made God's children. His spirit lives in us, giving us life. And we have a high priest who grants us access right into the very presence of God, where we can ask for what we need and receive his Grace. We might not have seen the ten plagues, but we've seen marriages that looked hopeless, and God brought them back together. We've seen prodigal kids that wanted nothing to do with God come back. We've seen those who faced financial ruin, and yet God provided and they came out of it. We've seen those who struggled with infertility, and yet God has met them there in that place. We've seen those who have had health issues, whether it was cancer or a heart attack and a stroke. And we've seen God protect them, heal the cancer, heal the illness, protect them. So we haven't seen the same kind of miracles, but we have seen things that are miraculous. And we could sing about what God has done. 
And can I just be honest with you, as we gather to sing as a group, our individual preferences about style and the kind of music don't matter at all. They shouldn't matter at all. What matters is the words. And the words are what we call blended worship. Or the words are important, and what we're trying to accomplish here at North Park is something called blended worship. So we're trying to take some tradition, elements of traditional worship and blend it with some of contemporary worship. But what's important isn't what songs are played or how much of each. What's important is the words and the focus. We have a family of four generations here in our church. So we got lots of preferences. But what's most important is like in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about that we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so some of those songs help us express directly to God. Others help us remember and rehearse, like this song here in Exodus. What God has done, who he is, and what he will do. I imagine the Israelites traveling to the promised land, and they're going to have some detours. And one generation isn't going to make it, but the next will. And then I imagine throughout their history, them traveling and walking around or teaching their kids this song and singing this song so that generation after generation knows what happened at the Red Sea. And the same is true with our songs. It's not just a matter of, do I like it? Should I sing at church? Should I not? We sing about what God has done. We express what that means to us, but we also are passing it on to the next generation. We remember and we rehearse what God has done. All right, there's a second conversation, and that's who God is. Exodus is a book about God's deliverance. That's the theme that we've chosen, but it's also a book where God is making himself known. Going back to chapter 6 and verse 7, God said, I will take you, Israel, as my people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. His goal was that they would know him. Through the ten plagues, he consistently said this. He said, you will know that I am the Lord, so that you may know there is no one like our Lord. He said, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. Teachers, mark me with a red X for the wrong no there. So that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth, that I might show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, that you may know that I am the Lord. So the way that God is delivering Israel has a purpose. He's doing these incredible things, these wonders, so that they would know who he is. He's introducing himself. Later, Moses would write in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in case we had any questions about it, he says, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? You ever heard of that? Has a God ever tried that? By testings and by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. The next verse. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God and besides him there is no other. So God has been introducing himself to Israel and the world that will listen and watch. I just want to ask you today, do you really know God? Do you know who he is and what he's like? The answer to that question will probably be found in have you read, have you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible? Do you come regularly to hear what the Bible is about? Because that's where God reveals himself for us. Remember Moses, when he first met God in the burning bush, what was his question? God said, you're going to go. And he said, well, who shall I say sent me? He said, I am. Then Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And now in this song, in verse 11, 
They sing, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who else could do this kind of stuff? And then they list three things about who God is. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Holiness really means to be set apart. What they're saying is, God, you are one of a kind. No one else is like you in your character and what you can do. You are unique. You are one of a kind. And then awesome in glory, or some of your translations say, uh, praiseworthy acts. It's really describing that what he does is always right and good, and it's impressive. <laughs> it's impressive that he can always do what's right and good, and oftentimes he does it in ways they can only imagine. And that's the third thing. He's working wonders or miracles, that which is supernatural, things that human beings could never do. That's our God. And Israel has a first row seat to this. They're watching it and they're experiencing it. And in their song, they say, God, who is like you? There is no other God. And we saw in verse 31 that caused them to fear God in a respectful, healthy way and to put their trust in him. And so they sing about who God is, this unique, one-of-a-kind God who always does what's good and right and is able to do the supernatural. And they saw it firsthand. And so what did they do? They sang. They sang a song. You know, today God reveals himself, too, in miraculous ways. And I listed a few things that we could point to and say only God could have done that. Only God could have known that and worked in that situation. But did you know there is one thing that we can point to? That we don't need any more miraculous things from God to know that he is one of a kind. You know what that is? The resurrection. The resurrection. He sent his son who lived and died in the grave three days, and then he came back from the dead. What else do we need? Who else can do that? Only our God can do that. So I know we want to see God do things. To, is God there? And show me that you're real. God has already shown us that he is so real in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We sang about that today in Christ alone. We did exactly what they were doing. Scorned by the ones he came to save till on the cross Jesus died. And there the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. But there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he arose. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. What could be more miraculous than that? We have a God who's a one of a kind. First of all, to enter into our world, that he became flesh. But then he lived a perfect sinless life, died. And then rose again. No more miracles are needed to know that God is the one of a kind. And so we should sing about that. Am I saying you shouldn't listen to any non-Christian music? I'm not saying that. I have music that I listen to that isn't Christian music. But I am saying if you're a Christian, you ought to sing. You ought to sing about what God has done and you ought to sing about who God is. And we'll do that together and sometimes in different ways. But we ought to sing just as they did. Last conversation is about God will do. What will God do? All right, so verses 12 and 13, and there's an interpretive challenge here in this verse. I want to explain it to, to you, okay? So you guys got your thinking caps on? This is the intellectual part of the message, all right? He says, you stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will, 
lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Okay, so you stretch. Is that present, past, or future? It's probably present, right? You will. Is that future, past, or present? Okay, it's future. Some of your translations have that as present or past tense. You have led. Okay? And what's going on there is there's a, a tense that's called the past perfect tense. And what it means is something has already happened. But in the Bible, sometimes there's something called a prophetic past tense. It says God inspires the writers, or if a prophet is thinking about the future, they write in such a way that something is going to happen because God is saying it's going to. So they write about it as if it already has. Because it's certainly going to happen. And what you have here, starting verse 12, is a description of their journey. You can follow along uh, next year when we come back to it, or you can read for yourself and look. These things that are being described here are describing their journey to the promised land. God is saying, here's where I'm going to take you, and it's as good as done. I will do this. So God is going to stretch out his right hand, and all those enemies that are going to come after him as they go to the promised land, he's going to take care of them. And then this is good, in your unfailing love. Again, God leads with love and kindness. It's when you're unrepentant and rebellious that the wrath comes. So he'll lead the people you have redeemed, and in your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Next verse. The nations will hear and tremble, and anguish will grip the people of Philistia. So they're going to be... Uh, having to go through the Philistines' lands. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt far away. Right? Because who's doing this? It's God, their warrior God. They're not able to fight against these nations. God is asking them to travel to this land of Canaan. And what we're having described for us is God taking them there. All right, verse 16. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. And this really is the transition at the end of this song for the rest of the book. And that's why we're stopping here and Next year, we'll pick it up as they begin that journey into the promised land. You know, God always wants to live with his people. It says there he's going to plant them there, and God will be with them. God always wants to live with his people. In John 14, it says, don't let your hearts be troubled because Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And in his father's house are many rooms. Sometimes we get confused because the older version said uh, in his mansion, right? The idea is in God's house, there's a room for you. You have a reservation if you know Jesus. God is preparing that place because he always wants his people to be with him and to live with them. Where is heaven? I don't know, but it's wherever Jesus is. Right? Jesus is preparing a place for us. And then one day we're going to go with him to live in his father's house with him. He's making preparations. Sometimes preparations are necessary. Most of you know, I think, that... um, On the last day of my honeymoon, July 6th, I had a heart attack. I didn't have any warning signs ahead of time, but I had an artery that was 100% blocked. God protected me, and we figured that probably less than an hour from the time I got in an ambulance to when I was in surgery. I arrived just like you see on TV in a helicopter, and the surgical team met me on the helipad. 
And guess what they started doing? They started making preparations. I was awake through that thing, and here's the last thing I remember. They wheeled me down into the uh, operating room. It was cold as I'll get out. I had a pinched nerve as well. I kept trying to tell everybody through the whole thing, I got a pinched nerve, and it hurts, and nobody cared. They thought the heart attack was more important. And the last time they moved me, it really hurt. I screamed. And I said, oh, I got a pinched nerve. And I don't know what she looked like. I couldn't see her. I imagined her to be like a 45 to 50-year-old nurse. And we're down south. And she just said, honey, that's not important right now. (laughs) And then here's what I remember. My shorts down to my knees, my underwear down to my knees. A razor started because the way that they get to your heart, it's incredible. I've got a little dot right there. And they went up through my wrist and down and did all of that to fix my heart and put a stent in there through my wrist. So that's one option, and some of you might know the other option is in your groin area. So shorts down to my knees, underwear to my knees, a razor starts. They shaved an area of my groin and my wrist, and then they started talking about whether they should cut my shirt off or not, and that was all I remember. But those were all preparations, trying to move as quickly as possible, and I'm so thankful that they did. And I'm so glad that God protected me, and that medical team did such a great job. Jesus is making preparations for us. We're not going into surgery, but we're going to live with them. There was a song years ago, that my father's big, big house. There's plenty of room, and then it just kind of describes fun activities that we would think of. Jesus is preparing a place for us. God always wants to live with his people. And so it's a song of what God has done, who God is, and what God will do. It's a song to be sung with other believers, with family, by yourself, at a concert, in your car, out loud, or in your heart. It's a song that should be sung through various seasons of trials and difficulty. And also of victories and joys. Then the last verse of the song says this. The Lord reigns forever and ever. This started as a showdown. Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in the world, against God. God dropped him to the bottom of the Red Sea. And then the statement. The Lord is king. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Not only is he greater than Pharaoh, he's greater than leaders who lead now and kings and rulers. Anyone who would try to oppose him, he is the king. And so if you're a Christian and you've been redeemed like the people of Israel, if you know Jesus, you should sing. And if you can't sing because you don't know him, I just want you to know today you can sing. This can become your song. You can know God not only as your creator but as your father. Someone who has been bought back by the blood of Jesus. All you have to do is invite him into your life. Bow your knee. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it and go towards God. Knowing that you can't rescue yourself, you can't pay for your sin, but Jesus already did that. Receive it as a gift. And then this becomes your song too. Do we really know God? God had to introduce himself to Israel And introduce himself to Pharaoh. The whole story of the Bible is a musical. And it's a musical about how God created us and we rebelled and went our own way. And then he chased us. (laughs) And he put in motion a plan that we could come back to him. And as we come back to him, we sing. So songs are meant to help us worship him directly or to remember and rehearse his truth. God has also given us communion or the Lord's table. As a way to remember and rehearse and to give thanks and to celebrate that same redemption. So we are going to take communion right now. Here's a short video to remind us about what we do here and those who are going to be helping to serve and lead. If you could come to the platform at this time.